0: This is the Game Designers of North Carolina
1: podcast.
2: Welcome to episode 40 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. My name is James Myers and I'm your host. Tonight we're going to hear from a number of guild members talking about games they think designers should play that were released in 2017. But before we begin, some news from the group. Last month, group member Josh Mills won the Ion Award in the strategy category for American Steel, a co-design with Nat Levan. It's a dice-rolling resource management game with a great theme, the American steel industry in its heyday. Group member Daniel Solis has two games coming out soon from Renegade Games. The first is Wonderland, a small card game, available exclusively on International Tabletop Day, which is April 28th. The second is Junk Orbit, a pickup and deliver game where players are picking up space junk and throwing it off their ship to both deliver it to a location and propel themselves the opposite direction. It officially releases July 5th, but is available June 20th if you pre-order through your lo- friendly local game store. Now on to our contributors. And next up, we have Matt Wolf. Matt, what game do you think designers should play from 2017?
0: All right. So uh, the game I I think everyone should play is called Paper Tales. It is designed by, and I apologize for butchering uh, this name, but Masato Yusugi, and it is published by Catch Up Games. Uh, At the time of recording, this isn't available in the U.S. because, of course, those who know me, you know I'm a hipster gamer. So I can't give you a recommendation of something you could easily find. But I think eventually uh, it'll get released in the U.S. because it's been pretty popular. Uh, So my my hope is that eventually someone will pick it up. Paper Tales is a card-drafting, tableau-building game. So card-drafting in the sense of, like, Seven Wonders Sushi Go, pick a card from your hand, pass the remaining on to the next player... Uh, Do that for, I think it's uh, five or six cards in the round. I actually forget at the moment. Uh, And then once you have the cards you drafted, then you're going to play them face down into your tab below. And the position matters because you're actually like deploying villagers and possibly uh, troops and things like that. And and where you position them on your tableau uh, might matter for the effect that's on the card. And then once all players have done that, you flip them and then you have to uh, get some income or possibly resolve some effects. And then you'll battle your two neighboring opponents. And that's just literally just saying, okay, who's got more strength you do. Okay. You get points and, and things like that. And then you'll have a little bit of upkeep and you do that for, for four rounds and whoever has the most points at the end, Uh, is the winner the thing that i really like about this game that and it's so simple and it i just kicked myself when i was like "Ah, that's amazing that they that they would do this to to solve like a kind of a fundamental problem with tableau slash engine building games is you know when someone has a really powerful engine what do you you know how, how do you keep that person from just running away with the game and what the way that paper tales kind of resolves that issue is at the end of each round, you're going to age the cards. So, you're going to put a little token on them. Uh, and if they have too many tokens, then you have to discard it. Uh, so, the card that you draft in the first round, you will probably only have it for two rounds. And then it's going to be gone after that uh, second round. So, it really keeps your engines just, you know, kind of idling more than just ramping up and up like a lot of engine builders and it really prevents someone who gets a really powerful card very early from just being able to dominate the game and it's it's just such a simple little thing but i thought that was just a brilliant way to prevent that kind of runaway leader that you can very often have in uh in engine building games
2: well it sounds like it moves the inflection point basically earlier where the the engine can you can accelerate faster just because you can't accelerate quite as far
0: yeah, it, it's kind of like, um, each round is, is like a sprint. And so instead of like slowly revving your engine, you're just going to redline it. Uh, and you just redline it every round. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I thought that it felt, you know, a little different than a lot of other drafting games and, and tableau building games in that sense. Cause you just, you, you almost get to, uh, like the really interesting part of an engine builder right away. Cause typically, if you think of something like San Juan or something even like uh, Race for the Galaxy, things like that, it, you know, it can take a little, a couple rounds to really kind of get, get something interesting going. Uh, and this, you know, that's not a problem, uh, in my opinion anyway with those games. I, I think that's, that is interesting. Uh, but this, this game, Paper Tales, kind of does short circuit that and just almost from the very beginning just gets right to doing some, some really interesting things and, and yeah, that that is—it's just a kind of a different feel and something that I haven't seen uh, myself with other drafting or uh, tableau building games. There might be something out there that I haven't played, but this is—I thought this one did it in a really uh, interesting way.
2: And they—they managed to do something like that where you're putting something on every card every round or or close to the cards every round like that, and not make it very fiddly.
0: No, because you only have five cards, uh, and you will only ever have. Uh, maximum of 5 cards in front of you not including some buildings that you can build um but those those just kind of go off to the the side. Um uh, so so yeah it's it's not fiddly at all. Now if you would have like 12 cards yeah i could see that getting a little fiddly. But because you're going to have four or five cards in front of you and it's real obvious if there's a an age token on it from the previous round unless you have an effect that would remove it that card's going to go away. Uh so now it's it's not fiddly at all.
2: Okay. Uh, anything else you want to say about Paper Tales? Uh,
0: uh, just, it, it also has really nice art, um, which is, you know, if, that'll appeal to certain people uh, who would look for a little bit more impact from their, their illustrations. For other people, they don't care. They'll just, you know, focus on the mechanisms in the game. Uh, but it but it does look very pretty as well. So I, I think that only adds to the, the appeal of the game. Yeah, but definitely uh, check it out if you have the opportunity. I, I think it's a really cool game.
2: All right. Well, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you. Future James here. Since we've
2: recorded this segment, Stronghold Games has picked up Paper Tales for English language distribution, and it should be available in wide release in July. And next up, we have Drew Hicks. How you doing, Drew? Doing all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. So what game from 2017 do you think game designers should play?
3: All right. So... I've noticed that a lot of recent games coming out, there's this legacy kind of style of, of game that's popular and more kind of story-centered games are getting popular. So to that end, I think designers should take a look at Fallout from Fantasy Flight Games. Um, let me see if I get the designers' names right here. Uh, from, from Andrew Fisher and I think Nathan Hayek. And the reason I think designers should take a look at Fallout is because the way that it handles the sort of uh, choose-your-own-adventure-style mechanism from uh, similar to things like uh, Above and Below and Arabian Nights and these types of things is, to me, really novel. So in Fallout, each scenario starts out with a number of quest cards. Uh, they're numbered like the pages in a choose-your-own-adventure book. And you start out with a number of them at the, start of the, uh, at the start of the game at the top of the board that anyone can complete. And based on the actions that players take throughout the game, you're going to add more cards to uh, the quest area. And you're also going to add more cards to various event decks that are uh, – that are. it's a Fantasy Flight game. So you got a lot of decks of event cards. But they start out with just very generic stuff in them. And based on the player's actions, they get populated with other cards from this deck that are numbered that might not come up or that might come up in a different order. So for example – one of the quest cards had you uh, recruited by a scientist who wanted you to test some water additive on uh, a local village. And you had the option to refuse to do it, uh, to go poison their water supply with this mutagen or whatever it was, or to drink it yourself, right? And if you choose to put it in their water supply, you get a reward from the scientist for that. But also you're going to grab a certain number of these cards out out of the box and shuffle them into the event deck. And those represent, like, various different outcomes that might happen as a result of that quest. But whether or not they actually get drawn uh, isn't necessarily, I don't know, it's, it's not deterministic. Because you shuffle them into the existing event deck, and then anytime you do another quest that affects what might happen, you shuffle the event deck again. So all those cards might keep getting shuffled to the bottom. Some cards leave. Some cards, uh, when they're done, they get put back into the deck. So... You're never exactly sure what's going to happen, and it can happen differently between different times that you play the game. And I think that that kind of mechanism helps solve uh, a couple of issues with the basic choose-your-own-adventure kind of mechanism, which is the first one is that once you've played through a, a certain paragraph in the book, you know what's going to happen, so you can kind of adjust based on your foreknowledge of the game. And so the game gets exhausted potentially more easily that way and you have to have more and more content. With this kind of mechanism you might not need to have as many individual story snippets, but you can have them come out in sort of an uncontrollable way that still takes into account the player's actions but it's not, you know, a flowchart. It's a uh you're just introducing possibilities instead of following a branching path.
2: Yeah, it um, sounds a lot like uh Robinson Crusoe except with a much wider range of options.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I actually haven't played Robinson Crusoe, so it might be a really similar mechanism. but the other the other piece that really intrigued me here is that it's not only uh, influencing this event deck, but it's also influencing the items that are available. It's influencing. So it's a big fantasy flight game like I said. and whenever you whenever you complete one of these things, you have the potential to be introducing cards into what's going to be available to buy, what's going to be available to find in towns, what's going to be available to find in ruins, all these different kind of places. It might work basically the same way as that, but either way, I think that that's a a pretty good place to look in terms of uh, introducing these sort of branching story possibilities to your game without making it something that's deterministic and traceable by players and gets exhausted very quickly. Okay. I also had another uh, bit of this topic that I wanted to mention, which is... As board games are sort of growing into this story-centric space, uh, I think more tabletop game designers, or specifically more board game, board and card game designers, should be looking seriously at developments in the tabletop role-playing area of the hobby. I was reading a thread by, uh, I think, let me see um, what his name actually is, Epidia on Twitter, uh, who's the designer of Dread, which is... uh, role-playing game system that uses Jenga as a action resolution uh, mechanism. And also a, a game called Worlds Without Master, or sorry, a game called Swords Without Master, which is uh, designed to emulate co- kind of um, sword and sorcery fiction. And in that thread, there was a, a really interesting point that was made about how the game mechanics should influence the fiction of the game in kind of an alternating way. So when a player wants to do something in the fiction of the game that should call upon a mechanic that changes something mechanically in the, in the scene or whatever uh, kind of scenario you're playing in the game. And that change in the mechanical scenario should have a change that's reflected in the fiction. Um, And basically if you're looking at the way the game is playing out and you have too many cycles where it's fiction modifying fiction directly or mechanics modifying mechanics directly, that you're going to have a kind of a decoupling between uh, what your players are doing in the story of the game, and what, how entities in your game system are interacting with each other. And I think that's an interesting way of thinking about how uh, game mechanics kind of impact players' immersion uh, in in the game that they're playing. And obviously, role playing games are typically more concerned with that type of thing than uh, board games or card games are. But I still think it's a really valuable thing to think about. What is your, what are your players the characters that they are or the the forces that they are what are they trying to do uh when they interact with a system in your game like what's the fictional setting for that like what 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 is the the cause and effect in the in the story of the game that they're trying to bring forth and when entities in your uh game are interacting mechanically when we have like long chains of just purely mechanical systems kind of running into each other that can be really satisfying from sort of a puzzly standpoint but it can also be really maybe alienating or uh ha- break any sense of kind of a schema or immersion that the, the player might have had with the with the game right
2: the the window um, dressing falls off and it becomes move a card versus yeah.
3: versus yeah.
2: doing an action in the game it just becomes mechanical
3: exactly and and i think that there's there's kind of two concerns there right the the first one, the, the one that I just said is the sort of player immersion. But the second one is when we do have these games with really kind of complex systems in them, it's really helpful to players to have that that schema that the what's their character doing in the fiction and what mechanic does that invoke to kind of fall back on. And when you just have chains of mechanics running into each other, that's completely lost because you know my character wanted to do something, but now I have to chase it through this uh, kind of Rube Goldberg of mechanics and figure out where it comes out on the other end to understand what the effect of that was. So anyway, I think that's a little bit related, but um, it's also something that's been on my mind recently. And I think that uh, there's a lot of really kind of interesting and exciting new stuff coming out in the tabletop role-playing world right now. So if you're a game designer, your only experience with tabletop role-playing is like Dungeons and Dragons or nothing, uh, then you should take a look at some of the things that have come out recently. And it's a, it's a, kind of a fresh direction to look at how mechanical systems interact with each other that you don't see a lot of in modern hobby board gaming, but that's going to cause you to think about your designs in a different way, I think.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting sounding topic. We may have to devote an entire episode to that somewhere down the line. (laughs) Anything else you want to share tonight?
3: Uh, No, that's it.
2: All right. well thanks for coming on. Thank you. So next up, we have Graham Russell. And Graham, what game from 2017 do you think game designers should play?
4: So I'm going to talk about DropMix. Okay. Uh, Anyone who's heard me say anything on Twitter knows uh, I've spent a lot of time with it. Uh, It was made by the team at Harmonix, which is the team behind, you know, Rock Band and Dance Central. And it is published by Hasbro, which sounds a lot like a, a toy or a video game. Uh, and I promise this is this is this is a, a game and the way we like to talk about it around here. OK, so,
2: so tell us a little bit about Drop Mix.
4: Yeah, so I should be a little more specific because, you know, DropMix is a board. It has cards. They play pieces of songs and you can put them down. And there are a few different modes to play this. You know, there are ways to just make mixes of songs. But the, the true game mode of it is called Clash, uh, where it's a head to head area control game. And it's, it's fairly simple to understand. You play cards down, and they have a volume rating of 1 to 3. And then the opponent can play, but they have to play something that is equal to or higher of volume than the previous card. And it has to match the color of the slot. There are wild cards. There are cards that can go in any slot that have special effects. Uh, it's it's really an interesting interesting little game that's not really being marketed that way. So, is that the only game you can play on this system, or are there, are there additional games? So, there's freestyle mode, which essentially lets you, you know, make mixes. And if you want to DJ your house party with it, I suppose you could. There's party mode, which is this timed thing that I guess you could just sit it out and people would play it, but it's not really, you know, like a. A game in the sense we usually talk about it it's a game for sure uh but it's about playing cards quickly and and all that if you want to play a game that is more reminiscent of a board or card game then that is clash
2: okay and so why do you think designers should play this particular version of drop mix
4: i think there there are two things one is the value of aesthetics and when people you know when people make prototypes they're either thinking you know, I want to stay away from the aesthetics uh, because I want the, the publisher to handle that or they go overboard, you know, commissioning their own art and and all that. But I do think there's value in thinking about what creating an aesthetic can do to a game uh, you know, because DropMix, you're listening to music and sure, it's the smart play to, you know, play the green two over in the green slot. That'll get you the most points right now. But what if your opponent has played a song that you really don't like? What it, should, you, should you cover that up? Or should you spend the next five minutes listening to that vocal track you really hate just for one point? How much is that point worth to you? I think there are interesting things in that, sort of in the metagame aspect of it.
2: That is a very interesting question. Do you take the move that is less interesting, but makes it is is overall a better play or do you do something interesting even if it's not going to make you win
4: yeah i i there's a lot of interesting choices in that especially like you're sitting there you have you know the wild bangerang card in your hand and you know when you play that down it will sound great no matter what that's a great thing about that card but it might not be the optimal play but what if you want to set it up so that you only win with your last points by playing it down uh there's there's some fun especially if you start playing with the same people over and over again, you learn their preferences and you can start to influence, you know, oh, well, each of these plays is worth two points to you, but I can make sure you go where I want you to go by changing the mix a little bit. Interesting. The other thing I'd say about the game is that it's a very simple game, an elegant game, but it does a lot with what it does, which it gets away with because of the music and all that. You don't see a lot of, you know, simple streamlined area control games on the market right now. Because, you know, they wouldn't sell. They don't have a hook or what have you. These This has a hook and it's got a riff and it's got a bass line and that's how it makes it happen. But it's, it's really an elegant, you play to 21, there are very simple rules to it and it does a lot with that space and it gets away with it because of, you know, hey, you know, what if it plays songs while you do it? All right.
2: I personally am very interested to see what happens with the technology that they've finally been able to introduce into into the game, where every card has the little chip inside of it that is read by the board. Obviously, right now, you need that special special plastic board uh, sure, to be able to read it, but who knows, in a year or two, you could see them embedded in cardboard uh, or something much smaller than the drop mix unit. Uh, For sure. And that could do all kinds of interesting things.
4: Yeah. And of course, if you really wanted to play Clash, you could do it without the board. I don't know anyone who has done that, but you totally can. The rules don't require that that you use that board. Uh, I guess you might need, you know, a six sided die or something. But I, I like that it's not just, uh, you know, a toy that's connected to these things, that it really is a sound game in its own right.
2: Anything else you'd like to share about Drop Mix?
4: You know, if you want to play uh, Clash, just hit me up. Uh, I got a travel setup with some headphones. We we can, it's I can go in public. It'd be fine. No one's gonna yell at us because there's, you know, I got two sets of headphones and a splitter, and it'd be fine. Please play Travel mix with me. I'm just dominating my current competition, and I, I need a new challenge. All right.
2: Well, hopefully we can send some uh, competitors your way. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on, Graham. No problem. And next up, we have Mark McGee. Mark, what game do you think
1: designers should play from 2017? I think they should play Codenames Duet. Codenames Duet by Vlada Trevato and Scott Eaton. All right. Uh, from Czech Games Edition, CGE.
2: Okay. So in case anyone is living under a rock, what exactly
1: is Codenames Duet? Codenames Duet is the two-player cooperative version of of code names each there's a grid of cards out there that have a word on them and you and your partner take turns giving a clue and a number the number indicates how many cards your clue is applicable to and your partner tries to guess which cards have the words on them that you are trying to get them to guess and if uh, and then you take turns doing that if you get them all right then you win if you get them wrong or get some of the wrong ones then you lose That's that's the overall gist of it.
2: Wildly, wildly successful game, at least the original Codenames.
1: Absolutely. All right, so why should game designers play Codenames Duet? So there's there's a couple different reasons that I think. I feel like Codenames Duet does, maybe even without trying, what other couples' games try to do. I think that is a good example of how to make a game that... Brings about specific types of experiences that different people might enjoy or might benefit from. So, what I guess to be in more detail, so there's lots of couples games, and the goal is like, hey, we're a game for people in relationships to play. And then they have some, like, it's something about the theme that makes it a couples game. Oh, this is a game about, you know, resolving conflict or whatever. Except for the theme is that, but the gameplay itself is just something like, Moving things across a board or, you know, some abstract something or another. But so Codenames does not market itself necessarily as a couples game, but it does things that I think couples games should do. And I'll tell you kind of what I'm thinking. Okay. So like Codenames Duet, in order to be good at it, some of the skills tested are communication and knowing what the other person is thinking and then the experience is like a win or lose together sort of thing. And during the experience, it does stuff like create inside jokes between the two different people. So many things like, things like that, you know, communication and knowing what the other person is thinking or something that's really beneficial between, you know, um, two people who are either really good friends or in a relationship or something like that. And that experience of throughout playing the game, maybe multiple times or even a few times, learning how the other person communicates or experiencing through guessing their clues, how they think is a way that you can kind of learn what's going on inside the other person's head, which is definitely is like a relationship feeling mechanism. And of course, winning and losing together is, is obviously something that kind of, it's a mechanism that reinforces the idea of togetherness. We're in this together. We're not going to go different ways. We're going to, you know, whatever happens to one of us is going to happen to both of us. And another thing, this is maybe my favorite part about it, is that you can create these like inside jokes or these stories that happen because it's a two player game. These are stories that happen that you and the other person share that maybe nobody else ever shares with you. Like I know that when I was playing with my wife, the I knew she wasn't going to get this, but I knew that I could explain it to her afterwards. So both the um the word beard and the word second were out there in the in the grid. So I told her my clue was measurement, and I knew she wouldn't get it. But I knew that after the game, I could explain why I was thinking that, and then we would have like this inside joke because uh, there's a unit of measurement called the beard second, which is how long your beard grows on average in one second. It's a very small amount of distance. Okay. You know, kind of like light year is the amount of distance that light travels in one year. A beard second is the amount of length that your beard grows in one second so it's a super small amount but you know so I gave that clue and yes she missed it because had never heard of a beard second but then after the game I was like yeah beard second haven't you ever heard of a beard second and I kind of told her what a beard second was and then from then on because we were playing this game that kind of is like a tool for creating inside jokes almost we have this joke about the beard second which is you know a thing that we have that maybe I don't have with any other people and so these the, the mechanisms in this game kind of create a lot of the experiences and I guess feelings and the type of skills that are both interesting and useful and even beneficial for like a relationship or even like a, a good friendship. And I think that even though it doesn't like sell itself as a couple's game, it is a great example of a game that is a couple's game because of the mechanics of the game not just because the theme is about something that couples do
2: that's really interesting i've only ever had the chance to play this with a complete stranger so i cannot imagine what it's like playing with your significant other
1: yeah and i i've never played it with a complete stranger i imagine it totally works but i think i would have to bet that it would you could it would just go to the next level when playing with someone who's like a very close friend or something that you've known forever, especially if it's someone that's a significant other. Um, I, I would imagine that the, the types of experiences would just kind of be at the next level as far as the, the way that you play the game together. I almost
2: wonder if you end up with a Hanabi like experience where you play with the same person over and over and you get a language between you that is kind of unspoken.
1: Yeah. And I think you definitely do. Definitely do. And like, And you can make callbacks to something that happened in your own personal life. Like my wife had told a a clue that had something to do with one of our kids that, of course, nobody but me would even have a chance of getting that. Um, So, yeah. So because we have this this relationship outside of the game, we were able to experience the game at a different level than people who don't know each other. And yeah, I mean, so even even things like that, it really uses the mechanisms to create that feeling, which I think is cool, even though they don't really market it that way, because it works for everybody but I think it works at a different level um, as a relationship game.
2: Alright, great things to keep in mind as you're going forward with your two-player designs.
1: Doing the um, yeah mechanisms-based experiences over theme-based experiences is, is kind of how I view that. Yeah. Alright, anything else you want to say about Codenames Duet? Yeah, another thing that I think is really interesting about Codenames Duet is that even though you know it's not the first Codenames game that came out, it came out after the core Codenames game, but I think that it is probably the best Codenames game, which I think we can kind of take from that, that even if you have a game that's really, really good, many times there are ways to make it better and to find something about it that you can do that just makes it a better experience than than it was. So like just just because you have a game that works really great doesn't mean that it can't be made better. And I think that, I mean, obviously, Vlad Tchavadl has come out with lots of games, and it's not like Codenames was his first game ever, but... He is, so someone experienced, made a game that was really good, but then there's a better version of that game that was not the first game like that that he made. And so I think, you know, adding on or evolving games into find, into finding like better versions of them is something that can happen for even experienced people and even games that are already really good. All right. Well,
2: thank you very much for coming on this evening, Mark. Yeah, no problem. And we're here with Daniel Solis. Daniel, what game do you think designers should play from 2017?
5: I think designers should play Azul by Michael Kiesling from Plan B Games, uh, now Next Move Games.
2: All right. And why do you think designers need to play Azul? Uh, I think there is a
5: very frequent topic uh, that comes up amongst designers about elegance and uh, game design. And uh, it it's Hard to find modern examples of elegance in in modern day. Usually, the things that are cited are things like very abstract kind of games that tend to feel a little bit dry and and kind of intimidating. Uh, your your chess and your go and that kind of thing. Uh, so it is a uh, it's always a sort of kind of a breath of fresh air when you see a game that has all of those classical elements of a elegant game, but is presented in a way that just almost. Uh, invariably draws the eye and draws attention, uh, and lures newcomers to, uh, to board games. Uh, whenever, whenever Azul is on the table and someone's walking by, they ask about it. Uh, whenever someone's playing Azul, they have this compulsion to try to eat those, <laughs> those little candy colored, uh, tiles. At least maybe the that's me. The little Starbursts. Yeah, they look like starbursts but and this this the satisfying tactile nature of uh of those components uh, really helps seal the deal and the uh and the actual game design of it is is what kind of keeps that keeps them coming back the flashy components and all that stuff will definitely draw and draw the the crowd but you need a solid underpinning uh to to keep to keep people coming back to uh, to that game and certainly I've had conventions where I've played Azul three or four times and each time teaching someone new and I've enjoyed teaching it so many times. My experience with it is actually a little bit odd because the first three times I played Azul, I played incorrectly and each time I played a different way. And that might be another one of those weird things where... I've had I've had situations where a uh, where someone played my game incorrectly and uh, either I lost the pitch because of it or uh, or got a poor review because of one error in the rules. And so in those cases, it kind of feels bad, like, oh, man, they didn't play it correctly. But, you know, their, their opinion stands. And what's interesting is finding a game where you can play incorrectly and still kind of love it because <laughs> every time I played it, even the first time, the second time, the third time. Fourth time, finally got the scoring and all that stuff correct. In in either case, the the essence of it um, was the the act of choosing sort of choosing my poison whenever I play that game uh, is uh, I'm going to take all of these tiles, put them into my workspace and hope and pray that nobody else takes the thing that that. That I want uh, before it's my turn again that back and forth that uh, that tension was there in every single play. It was only the the minor details of how exactly to precisely score things that uh, that was all kind of shoved into the end game that that really didn't uh, factor too much into my enjoyment of the game because really the heart of it was that interaction, not so much the uh, the administration or the evaluation part of it. Um, and and you'll find that a lot of games they they tend to kind of m- uh, miss some details or or have some uh, vague rules around that around that part of things and I think we 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 tend to tolerate that and players who enjoy a game can tolerate that kind of thing if the game is relatively short if it's a a, a joy to look at. And if the actual core interaction of it is something that is innovative and fun fun to do. If, if those things are in place, then yeah, it can uh, a game can survive any number of, of uh, slight miscalculations of scores and that kind of thing. Because the, the game itself is really so much fun.
2: Yeah, I've seen a number of people who played it wrong online posting pictures. And their response is not to say this game is not fun. Their response is just to say this game is really hard. Um, oh, so they're boy. obviously still enjoying it even though they're playing by the wrong rules. And so we jumped right into why designers should play it, but we actually didn't even talk about what you're doing. So for anybody who has not played Azul, uh, what exactly are you doing?
5: Right. Uh, So everybody is uh, building a mosaic Uh, In Portugal, and you're assembling tiles to make this mosaic uh, from a pool of randomly sorted out tiles that are laid out on these different little factory boards. And on your turn, all you have to do is take all tiles of one color from one uh, pool of tiles. Um, and any that you don't choose go into a central pool that can also be accessed, but the first one to draw any tiles out of the central pool will have to take the first player marker, which is a, a small uh, point penalty at the end of the round. But it's it's just the simplest choice you can possibly make It's just take all of one type of tile from... A place and you just repeat that over and over and over again but the particular circumstances around that choice will gradually evolve and the arc of that game means that what was a very simple choice an almost automatic choice in the beginning uh becomes this uh sort of a nail-biting backstabbing uh very tense decision that that uh happens organically it's not a surprise It's not this steep cliff that you sometimes have where suddenly a game's tone changes, uh, at a very precise pivot point. It's, uh, is, is a very clear and almost confidently designed arc to that, into that game that, uh, that just happens so so smoothly that you don't really even notice that that it happened and before you know it someone someone's ended the game um, before you're ready and so you're like oh next time I want to try I want to try to do this better the the trick of the game is that when you're assembling uh, the tiles onto your board you have to follow very particular placement restrictions uh, in order to actually be allowed to put a tile onto a particular spot on your uh, on your wall and following those restrictions is is what makes things sometimes trickier as the game proceeds because you can't repeat a color within a row or column Uh, you have to have a certain number of tiles in order to place at a certain spot it's uh, very clear as far as visuals go as as far as the board and workspace goes um, they uh, it makes very very clear what those requirements are and uh, that's another one of those things that i I tend to appreciate too is when um, they're There is just enough graphical uh, accessibility and hint to uh, to make it easy to pick up, uh, but uh, not so much that it distracts or uh, or is inconsistent or adds too much information to process at one time. Just a great game. I like it so much. I wish I could articulate better what I like so much about it.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you have said you've got great components and you've got the the rules that work, even if you don't follow them exactly. It still is fun, even if it's more difficult. And yeah, the the decision space just ramps up so beautifully as you go from pick one out of these seven to one out of these four to this one or that one. And Mm -hmm.
5: uh, there's always and there's always that that one little moment where at the the very end you'll have uh, just two or three options and you can sort of anticipate if I take this, then you take this and you have the little princess bride. Oh, I, uh, only a fool would do this, so I will do this. Oh no, but you know that I'm no fool, and so I won't do this. And and that back and forth. The it, it's there's something to be said for having completely new players play that game. And by the end of the of the say the second round, they feel like experts, uh, and the game made made them feel that way. Uh, and it's it's rare to find a game that that does that so so well. Uh, but yeah. I really like yeah, it. Yeah,
2: definitely. Uh, I had a chance to play it for the first time about a month ago, and it definitely, definitely scratches that itch. Anything else?
5: It's good. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to what Next Move Games does uh, next with with that brand new uh, imprint that they're doing for all the, these these uh, four letter abstracts uh, that they're releasing. Uh, I'm curious to see what Reef looks like and how that plays, and what they come, uh, what, what's going to come after that.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of the Game Designers in North Carolina podcast. To discuss this episode, please go to our guild on BoardGameGeek. Go to podcast.gdofnc.com, and that will redirect you to our guild on BGG. All feedback is welcome. We also have a group Twitter account that you can follow, at GDOfNC,
4: which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. Have a good night.